Welcome to another episode of the Creators Honey podcast. Today we have a very special episode. Not only is it the last episode of season one, we're just taking a short break over the summer to relax and we'll be back in the fall with season two, but it is also an episode with a dear childhood friend of mine, Arjuta Shramali. She is the owner and founder of the Desi Bride, and she connects brides and grooms and their families to vendors in Texas who are wanting to plan South Asian weddings. She has been such a joy to watch over the years. It is so fun watching your friend succeed and have an amazing career and then transition into becoming an incredible entrepreneur. We grew up together in Dubai and spent our middle school and early high school years in a close-knit friend group. And like I said, it's just been so fun watching her grow as an entrepreneur over the years. And I am so excited to learn a little bit more about the business because I don't know much about it. So we're going to interview her and we'll start with you just introducing yourself, Arjita. If you could tell us a little bit about you and the business, that would be great. Thank you, Sandy. I am so excited to be here. It's funny, exactly what Sandy was saying. We went back to middle school and high school. So it's funny to kind of think back to where we were at and where we're at now and just how how life has kind of just fallen fallen by. I'm so super excited to be on her podcast today. A little bit about me. So I am a techie turned entrepreneur. Prior to starting the Daisy Pride, I actually started my career as a consultant at Deloitte, really learning the tricks of the trade and understanding basic skills like storytelling to how do you take a bunch of data and really create insights out of it. From Deloitte, I moved to Amazon and I was focused on the consumable space and really thinking about how do I turn my brand I was focused on or leading, turn it into a profitable business for Amazon. Went back to school, got my MBA from the Kellogg School of Management. And from there, I knew I wanted to go back in tech. I love the fast-paced environment. I love the innovation that came out of it. And so I went to Samsung and I spent three years at Samsung in a variety of roles. So I did everything from launching the country's first 5G phone, the S10 5G, as a product manager to most recently leading our online sales team. So when your refrigerator breaks, typically a consumer will go into a store to buy a new refrigerator. My role was really thinking about how do I get that consumer to stay online, buy a refrigerator online, and stick with us through their through their online experience. And so I actually left Samsung about four months ago to go all in about in go all in on the Daisy Bride. Happy to jump into the story, Sandy, if you want me to. Sure. You're actually like one of the only people in the world who calls me Sandy. So I think it's so funny. (laughs) I'm getting like flashbacks to my childhood. But yes, I'd love to hear the story of how it all got started. Where did the idea come from for the business? And just let us let us hear how it all got started. So it is, it's funny when I was a bride and if I told myself I'm going to be in the wedding industry after this, I would have been like, oh my God, you're crazy. So, but now here I am, I'm in the wedding business. So for me, it started in 2019. So my husband Vedang and I, we got married in Jaipur in India. My parents are Indian and his family, he is from India, his family is in India. And so we wanted to have this big fat Royal Indian wedding. We had a ton of friends that we wanted to bring from the US to really see India and enjoy this wedding. And so we went back and we 
I think our wedding planning process started in 2018, and it was just one of the most stressful experiences that we've ever had. I think both of us, both since we've been together and separately, I think the pinnacle was it was the day after Valentine's Day, and it was about two weeks before our wedding. And Vedan looks at me and he's like, hey, I think I need to go to the ER. And it was it was Friday, it was the middle of a work day. I was actually on my way to a final round interview. So I was like, let me email them and cancel. Um, and he's like, I think I'm having a heart attack. And it was one of those moments where I was like, he's one of the most chill people you will meet. He's extremely laid back. So it's very surprising to hear. And uh, and like not not old by any means, granted that heart attacks can unfortunately happen to anyone. So anyways, we, we rushed to the hospital and several hours later, we found out that it was an anxiety attack. And since then it's taken him almost two years to like fully recover from anxiety and like understanding what it feels like and how you get through it. But seeing someone so close to me go through that experience. And then after that, talking to so many other couples, families that go through the drama, the stress, the high anxiety that wedding planning causes. I always wondered to myself, like, why isn't there a solution to this? Millions of people get married every year, yet why do we all go through the same exact challenges? As I'm going to talk a little bit more about South Asian weddings and Indian weddings in particular. So South Asian weddings or Indian weddings typically are the average budget is $125,000 to $400,000 in the U.S. So it's a mortgage. And then you go from there and you have three to four days of events. You have two families that are extremely involved in the process. If they're not involved, they're running the process. And so it's money, it's time, it's the complexity of so many different players and people coming together that creates for this like more and more stressful experience over time. And so I took that and I looked at my experience, interviewed a lot of other couples to understand like what are the biggest pain points? And what we realized is the vendor selection process is like very challenging. There's no transparency in the industry. One, you have to figure out like, what are you even looking for? What questions do you ask them? How do you vet vendors? And then you're emailing or calling, you know, 20 different venues, 20 different DJs to figure out, hey, what's your rate? And how do you even think about that? And so I started the Daisy Bride as a platform where the couple and the family can come on, they can figure out, I'm looking for these 15 different vendors and then actually pick their city and find these curated vendors with pricing and honest reviews. For me, those two are really, really important. I think one is transparent pricing. I don't want my couple to have to email 20 different people when all this information exists, like up here in everyone's head, why not put it in one place for them to reference? And then two is honest reviews. This industry is a very opaque industry and it should be a very service oriented industry. So we've had multiple situations where couples may not have gotten the experience that they were expecting. And so we want it, we want couples to feel comfortable leaving anonymous reviews for their vendors to really talk about the goods and then the opportunities for improvement to really help the vendors and grow as businesses as well. I'll spin that on the other side. So it's not just about the couple. For me, it's also about the business, the small business, the entrepreneur. We have some amazing vendors in the South Asian business. We also have some incredible vendors that sit outside of the South Asian business traditionally and are trying 
to bring in their innovation into our community. And I want the Daisy Bright to be that platform to connect the dots. There's so many great entrepreneurs that don't have the opportunity to be a part of the South Asian circle. And so our role is how do we bring them into the circle, make them a piece of the South Asian experience and offer their services to our couples. That's fantastic. I love hearing about how it all works and and the reasoning behind how you started it. I actually didn't know the story about Vidang and, and how that all unfolded. And I think it's so, so great the thing you're doing because like you said everyone is so stressed out when they're getting married I didn't even have a big wedding but it was such a stressful time and the fact that it just takes so much time and energy and you're providing a platform that eliminates a lot of those barriers and complications that exist in the wedding industry is so interesting so tell us a little bit about what for people not familiar with Indian culture what does Desi mean and tell us a little more about just South Indian wedding culture in general absolutely so when I was thinking about names I wanted to be very inclusive because most people have heard of Indian weddings, but there's also so many other cultures in South Asia that have very like exciting and beautiful and and complex weddings. And so Desi is very comprehensive. It alludes to people from Pakistan, from India, from Sri Lanka, from Bangladesh, from Nepal. And so the Desi Ride is really a platform for all of those, all people from across different cultures that fall into the South Asian demographic. In terms of South Asian weddings, and I'll speak a little bit more about Indian weddings because I think more people have been exposed to those. They are, it's an event, three to four days, and it starts with a lot of times you actually start with, we call it the Shanti or the Ganesh Puja, which is this prayer essentially, which is, it's an auspicious prayer to like kick off the event and get everyone excited by it. And usually that's like close family, maybe some friends. So you'll kick it off with that. And then after that, you have several events that actually lead into the wedding weekend or the wedding. So one of the first events is the, it's called the Mayu or the Holdi which is, it's this yellow turmeric paste. And like now they have, they actually come up with paste that are like organic and healthier for your skin. So, and you're not left with yellow skin essentially, but it's a ceremony that is meant to help like detox you, cleanse you. Turmeric has like a cooling effect. It also has like a really good like antibiotic effect. So if you have like any rashes or dryness on your skin, it's helping like purify your skin like before the big day gets started. I'll say like it can be a lot of fun. So like usually the way it starts is you've got like this big bowl of like a turmeric paste and all of your family and friends will like smear a little bit. The bride and groom traditionally do it separately. And so your friends and family will smear it on you. It's almost like, you know, you'll get a little bit, but at the end of it, you feel like you've had this plate of like turmeric paste, essentially like caked on you. (laughs) You're covered in this paste. So that's um, one of the key events. And then from there, you usually go into the Mandy ceremony or the henna ceremony. 
And so henna goes back to like thousands of years ago. It is also kind of an antibiotic treatment. It's used for like cooling. And so back in the day, actually, like royalty in the summer as a cooling effect, like because it was so hot, they'd actually have a henna artist come in and just have them like draw henna on their arms and their legs to help queen feel like cooler and just like comfortable and peaceful. It also has like a detoxifying, de-stressing impact and so you feel more at peace and so I mean Sandy you talked about this a little bit like weddings are stressful it's like people and events and like who knows what goes missing and so the Mandy ceremony is supposed to be one like before the crazy gets crazy like you literally as a bride so the groom will get a little bit as a symbolic gesture but usually this event is more for the bride and the women it can take for like bridal henna it can take easily two to four hours. And so the bride is literally just sitting there with her arms and her legs out. And you have one or two henna artists that are creating these intricate designs. Today, we actually have like, people do all sorts of cool things. I've heard of like people creating their love story on their arms. So they'll do like logos of like where they went to school, where they work, like favorite sports teams. I saw someone's hand recently that had like Taco Bell on it. And so <laughs> really a way for you to like tell your story through your henna mm -hmm. so, and, and it's it's great because friends and family really enjoy it as well like you have a bunch of people come out and they all get their menzi or their henna done as well then from the henna we go into the sanki and in other in some people like Gujaratis that are they're from North India they have like a gerba which is very similar to a sangeet and this is like a fun dance party essentially people laugh because South Asian weddings have a lot of choreographed dances so like friends and family will spend months prepping for the dance in advance learning the dance there's professional dance choreographers that will choreograph, choreograph the dance and send it to you and like teach it to you and make sure you know it and so usually a lot of large weddings will have anywhere between like one to two hours of choreographed dances wow it's a lot. It's a lot, but it's a lot of fun to watch. You have everything from like the little cousins who maybe have never danced before. <laughs> like these extravagant performances that family and friends put in. And so from there, you open up the dance floor and it's usually like a really fun, crazy night the night before the wedding. Then the next day you have the wedding in. So the wedding in South Asian and specifically Hindu weddings is very determined by, by like, the, the moon and like the stars and alignment. And so they have this thing called the Morat. And so you talk to your priest or your parents talk to the priest and they figure out like, when do the stars align? And it's, the, the, if you've seen Indian matchmaking on Netflix, she talks about this yes. a little bit. <laughs> yes. So they look at like astrology and they figure out, okay, like your son and daughter have to get married. There is these 10 dates available on these 10 dates. The Morat is between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m., you know, 6 p.m. and 10 p.m. Sometimes it's like super particular and it's like you have to get married between like 9-11 a.m. and like 10-23 a.m. So it can be, I think that's one of the challenges with like modern millennial couples because we're like, hey, we want to have like a flexible day where we're not having like a 2 a.m. wedding. Yeah. And so we have kind of accommodated to that a little bit. And we have a little bit more flexibility, but at the same time, you're really tied. Almost most, I'd say most Hindu couples are really tied to the dates that the priest picks and then the time. 
And so they're really particular about the date and the time for that reason. So you have this wedding and the wedding itself can be like three to four hours long. And so I remember when I first went to, I went to my first Christian wedding, what, like right after undergrad and like, I'd never been to one before. And I think I showed up right when the groomsmen were walking in and then it was like five minutes and I was like, had I been late, I would have missed the wedding. We'll never miss an Indian wedding because it goes <laughs> on anywhere from an hour and a half to three hours long. Like people wow. literally leave, they eat snacks, they chat, and the wedding is still going on, like on the stage. So the wedding itself is the main pinnacle of the wedding is called like it's called the Faras. It's essentially seven rounds uh, over like around the sacred fire, and so each round basically symbolizes a different vow so vows like like I promise to love you forever and health and sickness like I promise that we will always focus on like happiness first I promise to take care of you like I promise to love your family like I love my own and so there's basically seven different vows that you take and then at the end of it you're married and so and then the last event Sometimes there's more after that, but the main last event is the reception. And that's like, just like any other reception, it's one big party in like modern millennial couples. They'll have a first dance. They might have a father, daughter, or mother, son dance, and then they'll do speeches. And like, if you go to, it depends on like where, which part of India people are from. And it can go from anywhere where like, there are no alcoholic beverages to like where like it's crazy and reception goes on until four or five in the morning so that's kind of like big picture as you can see there's a lot that goes into South Asian weddings but that is kind of the highlight reel of what all goes into the South Asian wedding and how it plays out. Wow that's so many beautiful ceremonies I I I think that well, it's exactly like you said, a lot of Christian weddings, my wedding <laughs> included this, the initial ceremony, the reception's longer, but the ceremony itself is so short. And mm-hmm. I think that's really beautiful that it, it does take a little bit longer because you're making those, those vows to each other. And that's, that's really beautiful. And the, the leading up to it is also kind of nice. You have things to like relax you and, and just enjoy that time with family. I also felt my wedding was like, done in 12 hours with if with the reception and the so it was less than a day and I feel like when you spread it out a little bit there's more time to enjoy your friends and family and actually spend time with them so I think that's really beautiful but it is a long time and so I can imagine it being super stressful so if you have all those logistics that you can work out ahead of time and just feel at peace with it by having some of those resources that you provide on your platform I think that that makes it so much easier for people. So tell us a little bit about how you made the transition from jumping ship from Samsung and and going full-time with this. So it was a very difficult decision. I have always been used to corporate. I've, for the most part, I've worked at large organizations. I So before, right before I went to Kellogg, I actually started a company and I I worked with some people I had worked with at Amazon to start a company around bringing skincare brands to the U.S. 
And through that experience, I learned a lot about like being scrappy and like entrepreneurship and what it means. And I think a lot of times startups are very glamorized, right? Like you hear about like all these fundraisers, Bumble IPO'd, you know, and, and you hear these incredible stories, but what you don't see is nine out of 10 entrepreneurs actually, I hate to call it failure, but they decided to stop. They decide to stop doing what they're doing before they even talk about raising capital. Something like, I can't remember the exact statistic, but under 50% of startups actually last a year and go into their second year. And so we don't hear those stories of all the struggles. In reality, startups are not all strategy. Yes, you need strategy, you need vision, you need to understand the consumer, you need product market fit. But 80-90% of the role is execution. Like it's all about getting your hands dirty. Like what's my content calendar look like? You create the content calendar, you create the content, you post it. What's, you don't have an operations team. Like you have to figure out like, how do you actually, what's your product? Like, how do you develop the product? Who do you outsource or how do you do you build it yourself? Right. So there's so much that goes into it. And so when I was at Samsung, I was honestly really nervous about leaving. I had, um, I, I loved doing what I was doing. I was working with a really great group of people. We felt like we were making a huge impact. And I had been working on the Daisy Bride as a passion project. And it had been almost a year at that point. And what I quickly realized is I was doing maybe 10% of what I could do every single week. I'd work for maybe eight or 10 hours a week. And it was just very, very slow. And the more couples I talked to, I realized that this was clearly a pain point and it was not being addressed in the US market today. And so I thought to myself, you know, if I leave Samsung, what do I have to lose? And for me, it was honestly nothing. Yes, I lose a year or two of pay, but can I always go back to the corporate world? Absolutely. We don't have any kids right now. So I don't have any other obligations that I have to worry about. And for me, it was really, it was a risk-free jump. And so one of the things I thought a lot about it, and I still, I have a post-it that my husband has made me put up in terms of like, why are you making this decision? And for me, it was three things. One was, I want to solve this problem. I think it is a big problem and there's so many challenges that come out of it. I want to find a more sustainable solution for our couples. I think two is, I want to learn. I have been, I'm so gracious that I have incredible mentors from the corporate world. I spent a summer at Techstars and I've found incredible mentors through there. And we just have such a great entrepreneurial support system, both in Texas, but even outside. And so I was like, you know, I want to learn. I want to learn what it takes to, to, to create a business. How do you run a business? How do you motivate your team? And so that was my second thing. And my third thing was I just want to have fun. I had been in the corporate world for several years and, and there's things that are challenging about being in the corporate world. There's plenty of pluses as well, but I was like, you know, this is a personal passion project. I really want to have fun. And so for me, the days, I have plenty of days. I was just telling Sandy before this, I was like, it's been a hard week. It's been one of those weeks where I'm like, hey, did I actually leave for the right reasons? Like, am I cut out to be a founder? Is this the right industry for me? 
But I always look back at that post-it and remind myself, you know, am I here? Am I getting the three things that I wanted out of it? And for me, the answer every single day, whether you ask me in the morning, whether you ask me after a tough conversation with a vendor, or you ask me at the end of the day when I'm exhausted, the answer to all three of those things is yes. And so I think one day I might go back to the corporate world, but for now, I am just really excited about being able to work on something that I'm passionate about and hopefully getting to solve a problem and, and helping other people, whether it's couples having an easier experience or businesses really growing their business, growing their business, have an impact. I love that. I love that you're motivated by the why, because I think if people don't know where they're coming from, it's so easy to quit. I, Arjita knows I have like had tons of different passions and different things I've tried to start or think about doing. And this is the only one that's really stuck because I feel a why for what I'm doing. I know what I want to do. And that's what keeps you motivated when you have these bad weeks and these difficult times and just always having that. I love that you have the post-it note to to remind you. I think everyone should have it displayed all over their (laughs) offices and and everything what they are motivated by because it is hard it's so hard and when I hear you talk about your professional experience and how much you've done in your life I just think like well it's hard for her and look at everything she's done and so it's kind of not I'm not saying it's a comfort but it is a little bit to know that even you (laughs) have hard times and it's just it shows that you shouldn't give up because like you said, a lot of businesses, they just stop what they're doing because they can't keep that motivation or find alternative ways to keep it going. And you're, you have to get scrappy and and think of, of ways to keep it going. But tell us a little bit about the formation of the website and how that all got started. Cause I imagine compiling a ton of different vendors and getting all that information together is really challenging. So how did you work the back end of that? And how do you continue to work with vendors and, and get them on your website? Yeah. So funny story. I am not a technical co-founder. My husband, fortunately, is an engineer, but even him, like he doesn't know how to code. So when I first started this platform, I did some research around what platforms could be a good platform for me to use. And I looked at WordPress and Squarespace and I just wasn't able to find the functionality. And like hindsight is 2020, right? So when I look back, I'm like, why didn't I do some more research around this? Like there's plenty of other platforms that have done this before. But I was like, you know what, I'm going to find a good developer. So I went on freelancer.com. And I found a developer that I thought was good. And I like, I like sketched, I literally took paper, and I sketched out the experience. And I would take screenshots of it. And I was like, I want you to build this. And we would meet like daily. And like, he had promised me a website in 10 weeks. This was probably November of 20, not even October of 2019, maybe. Fast forward, we get to March of 2020, and I still don't have a website. So now it's been like six months, COVID hits, and and he's just like, he's in India, so we're dealing with the communication issues, we're dealing with the time difference, and he was like, my developer doesn't have internet because he's working from home. And well, I was like, I feel bad, but that's not my problem. Like, 
figure out how to do this. Like, can he buy a hotspot? Like, can you give it to another developer? And he just goes cold turkey on me. Like he literally disappears. And Sandy, you will laugh because this website, not being technical, not having done this before, I didn't even create a forget password button. So someone logs in and they forget their password. I can't help you because I don't know how to code and I don't know how to fix the database, but yourself. So I, and I had that happen. I was like, oh gosh, what do I do? So I have this website that I can't launch because I cannot launch without the forget password button. My uh, login through Google and Facebook wasn't working, but the buttons were there. Like it was a hot mess and my developer has now disappeared. So I'm like, okay, I have to find a new developer. It took me six months to find a new developer. Um, and I learned so many lessons around outsourcing to India and like, how do you interview to find the right developers? How do you find someone trustworthy? How do you find someone reliable? And so I talked to lots of friends and family and I finally came up with a list of several agencies that were trustworthy to work with. Finally, fortunately found one that I still work with today and I really, really like them. And so that was the whole like process of the website. Um, in terms of from a from a technical standpoint, I have a product roadmap just like a product manager would have at a tech company. And I'm constantly thinking about, hey, what are my base priorities? What does my six month roadmap look like? What features do I want to add? How do I prioritize them? And then I do bi-weekly to monthly sprints with my developer to make sure we're moving the boat forward on the platform in terms of getting vendors. So it's a very manual process and it is a very challenging process. I think getting my first vendors was very, very difficult, right? Like I am a person not from the wedding industry saying that I want to help you. I don't have any clients. Why would you give me your information? Even though it's free. I'm like, why would you not? It's free. Like worst case, like you get better SEO because your information's on our site. But vendors are like, nah, like, no, I'm okay. I'm too busy. And so I had to really figure out how do I refine my value prop and tell my story, right? Why am I doing this? I'm doing this to help the couple. I'm doing it to improve transparency. I'm trying to better the industry. That is why I'm doing it. And telling that story over and over and what's in it for the vendor? Like, why should they sign up? What are the benefits for them? You know, they get a free profile. They get content that helps their SEO. They get to be a part of the South Asian community. We send them highly qualified leads. How do I tell that to vendors who are super busy? Most people don't respond to their email. So if I cold email them, they won't respond. So like, how do you reach that vendor? Tell the story. They might not respond the first time, so you have to follow up like three other times and lock them in and then actually onboard them. Mm-hmm. So the whole business development pipeline, I've kind of figured it in and out now. We have about 360 vendors in our pipeline today. We're only in Texas, so it's very intentional, very niche, but we have finally figured out this process of like, how do I encourage the vendor to join and then onboarding them from a technical standpoint is, is actually not that hard. We have a whole backend dashboard that we've built out where they can either onboard themselves 
or I have a team that will actually help me onboard the vendor and like make sure all their content is there. But it's it's hard. A lot of these vendors are mom and pop vendors. And so when you ask them, like, I need a three to five sentence unique description, not something that you copy and paste because we want to help your SEO. I don't get something that I can pull together. So then my team has to create that description for them. And you multiply that times 370 vendors. That's a lot of backend work. So it's been, it's had its challenges. Honestly, I didn't know what I was getting myself into until I started doing it. But I have learned a lot about how do you, from a product standpoint, like how do non-technical founders figure out a way just to like do it and get it done? And like, I still make mistakes a lot, but for the most part, it, it gets done. And then from a sales and business development standpoint, how do I sell my product? Even though it's free, I'm still selling it. Wow. What a great story because you start out like with the challenges and the, at any point you could have quit and you could have just said, this is too hard. I can't do it. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm done, but you kept going. And now you have over 300, what'd you say? 370 vendors on your yeah. site. That's an incredible accomplishment. Congratulations. We're excited. Yeah. So what are your plans for expansion? You said you are in Texas. Do you plan on on onboarding vendors from South Asian countries as well or mostly within the United States? What's your what's your end goal? What would be the ideal vision for Daisy Bride, the Daisy Bride win? Yeah. You're all set. Great question. I get that one a lot. So for me, the win, as I think about this year, right, is let's figure out Texas, right? Because as a, I'm pre-product market fit right now. I don't know if my platform is the right platform. Maybe, maybe it's not. Maybe it needs to be a completely different product. Maybe my consumer is very different, right? Because in, in South Asian weddings, you have the couple, but you also have the families, and so how am I reaching to them? So there's a lot of questions that I haven't answered that I haven't validated yet. And so to me, success really looks like, how can I help the Texas couple? We have a five to $7 billion South Asian wedding market in the country. Out of that, Texas takes more than 20%. So it's a big enough market for us to really play around with. And the other thing that I, that I love doing is I never say like, we don't want vendors from other states. We don't want vendors from other countries because there are so many vendors that have products that are shippable, like invitations, wedding essentials, like items that you use during the ceremony, uh, jewelry, clothing. And especially in, through the pandemic, we've seen the promise and value of like online and virtual so I would love for vendors around the country to be like, hey, I want to be on the Daisy Pride or even vendors. We have vendors from India who have amazing products. And for all the families that can travel to India or Pakistan, we're like, hey, we want you to still have access to these amazing businesses. You can have a video call with them and understand the selection, pick your choice and then have it shipped to you. So I'm definitely very happy to work with vendors and other states and countries and then the last thing I'll say is like, I mean, would we like in my ideal world, do I want to help couples all over the country? Well, absolutely. That would be my vision that one day, like the Daisy Bride is a platform for all couples that are planning South Asian weddings. Maybe we'll even go outside of South Asian weddings. But I think one thing that I've learned is like baby steps, like 
make sure you're solving the right problem, figure out what the right solution to is, nail your consumer and how you get to them, and then figure out like how and where to scale. That's great advice. I, I love that you said take baby steps because me asking you that question, I'm like, so wh- where are you in 10 years? But really like you have to figure out <laughs> what you're doing right now. And that's the most important thing. And I love that you're, you will have so many things in place to help you make sure that you're still progressing towards those end goals. So tell us a little bit about COVID. <laughs> I know that's impacted the wedding industry a lot. Tell us how that's affected you. Absolutely. I think first of all, it's very tough, right? When I talk to couples and vendors, like so many, like I look back to being a bride and like the amount, and like you can relate to this, the amount of time and energy you spend in wedding planning and creating this incredible vision of like your dream day. And now with COVID, you know, one, you can't have it maybe, two, there's so much uncertainty, so you don't know when you're going to have it. So my heart really does go out to all these couples that are having to deal with this. It's not, it's, it's beyond anything we had ever expected, and it's a really unfortunate and, and challenging time for those who are having to go through it. I think the, the other side of it is the, the vendors, right? In Texas, Fortunately, we, our, our brands are still, our companies are still doing very well for a lot of the vendors I talk to. There's definitely some things that have changed. Like as we move to micro weddings, you're still going to spend the same amount on a photographer, but you may not have as much decor if you're having a smaller venue. And so there's a lot of vendors that are doing fine. There's a lot of vendors that are really struggling and having to figure out, okay, what else can we be doing while our business is kind of on a pause and we wait to get past the pandemic? I think as I think about the industry, though, I'm very excited about what's to come. I think um, there's a couple of key trends that have come out from the pandemic. One of the biggest ones is that South Asian parents understand that you can still have a amazing, intimate, micro wedding. The number one thing that leads to guest lists being over 400 people, sometimes over 1,000 people, are the parents. They feel like they need to include not just all the family, all of their friends. If I invite this auntie, she's going to feel like if so-and-so is not invited, they're going to feel bad because this other person's invited. I need to invite my hairdresser because I've been working with her for 10 years, invite my dentist, like the list goes on and on and on. And parents have this need to have this beautiful event and almost thank everyone in their lives. Whereas the more modern millennial couple wants this intimate event, they want under 200 people that they can actually like create this beautiful experience with and like actually spend time with every single person. And I think unfortunately until the pandemic hit and parents were forced to cut down their list, they were just like, there's, I look back to the arguments I have with my mom about our guest list. I was reading an article about Priyanka Chopra today and she had, um, she's like, she's Bollywood turned Hollywood married to, to the Jonas brothers. And so she had 200 people on her guest list. And traditionally that wedding probably would have had thousands of people. And she had to really fight with her parents to get that. And so every single couple goes through that experience. And I think with the pandemic, it's shown parents that, Hey, we can have a smaller wedding and it will be okay. So I'm really excited about that. I think too, the opportunity that creates is this, it's no longer about quantity, it's really about quality per person. And so 
you can create this very like beautiful, unique, personalized experience for the couple. And intimate weddings allow for that because you may want to still keep the same budget, but now you have more money to go around per person. If you're under 400 people, no longer are you strapped to this banquet hall at this massive hotel. Now you can actually move to this like bespoke garden or do you know a museum or like whatever it is. It just opens up so many more options for the couple to play around with. So I think seeing these trends of intimate weddings and like the uniqueness that each of them will bring is gonna be really, really cool. And I think third is this component of like virtual and online. So back in the day, like you'd have families that would either from here fly to India or like from India fly here, Pakistan fly here just for the wedding. And you have a lot of older grandparents, you have people that just couldn't attend the wedding. And if they couldn't attend, they just couldn't attend. But with the pandemic, we've seen this like incredible way of like virtual production and how it's truly played a role in your entire wedding production. These virtual guests are part of your guest list. Mm -hmm. And so I was, there was a recent wedding where the girl, the bride's parents were in India and the family unfortunately couldn't fly for the wedding because it was in the middle of the pandemic. And she wanted her family to be there every single second. And so this like incredible production company, Valora Productions, they basically live streamed the event for like, I think it was like 22 hours straight. (sighs) And they like, not only did they live stream it, they actually were in touch with the videographers in India. They were able to incorporate highlights from everything going on in India to the wedding trailer here. And the coolest part was her family, her parents were sitting on, we call it the mandap where the bride and groom got married, the stage. There was actually a TV screen and they were actually there participating in the ceremony. So like, that's not something that you would ever have thought to do before the pandemic. I think virtual weddings are here to stay. And it's really exciting about like what that opens up because now you can have your grandparents from the other side of the country, the other side of the world, be a part of the wedding. You can have friends and family who are not able to travel, participate in the wedding and really engage. And it's not just like, I'm going to watch the wedding, right? They can actually interact with the couple. They can participate in the dances. They can still do speeches. So I think these three trends are here to stay. If anything, the pandemic, it's had its challenges and it's very, very unfortunate. But the good that has come out of it is I think it's really accelerated innovation. And I think it's going to change the industry for, for years to come. Beautiful. I love that. That's That's so interesting, the changes. I mean... I feel like before the pandemic, I didn't even, I'd never heard of Zoom. Well, I'd heard of it, but I'd never used it myself. And (laughs) there's just so many things that have come out of the pandemic. And I think it's great that I asked you like, oh, how has COVID affected things? And every single thing you said was a positive thing. It's so great. So let me just ask you my last question. Tell me a little bit about what you would recommend for a new entrepreneur who wants to pursue something similar to you. So maybe not like wedding website specifically for South Asian people, but someone who wants to go down this route of starting a business, maybe online, a website um, that supports vendors or, or something similar. Tell us what, what resources you would recommend and, and what advice you have. Yeah, absolutely. I think one is do your consumer research, right? Figure out. My marketing professor would always tell us in business school, like, you're a sample size of one. Like, you are not your customer. 
So find your customer. Like you might have a problem, but it may actually not be a problem that everyone else thinks is a problem. And so find, and it could literally be like, for me, I just talked to a lot of friends who had planned weddings recently. And I was like, hey, can I talk to you? Can I talk to your parents? I still do this today, actually. And so like interview potential consumers and like make sure you understand that it's truly a problem. I think two is don't be glued to your product. I tell myself every single day that this may not be the product. This may not be the solution. If you're glued to your product, then you're not going to want to pivot and like figure out what is the right solution to the problem. So that's two. I think three is like build a mentorship network of both peers and mentors that can give you advice. Entrepreneurship is very lonely. When I first started, I was always, I have an amazing group of friends. I have an incredible support system, but I didn't really have a lot of friends who are entrepreneurs. And I think most people were just like, oh, if she quit her job and she's going to go do her own thing, how cool, how incredible, how, you know, how lucky is she? And yes, absolutely to all those things. But what people don't see, and Sandy, you can relate to this, is like the grind, right? Like the number of, I was telling Sandy before this, I've been writing thousands and thousands of words of content. And that is not fun. Like by any means, like I don't, I've spent like probably 25 hours this week writing content. It's awful, but you got to do it. Cause if you don't do it, who else is going to do it? Like it's your business. And so Finding those mentors and peers is really, really important because one, they help, they provide you with a lens that you don't have. They help call your baby ugly because you don't want to, but it's good for you. And they support you when you're down and when you need it the most. So I think those are the biggest things. In terms of resources, there are so many great Facebook communities out there. Join them. Like I'm part of a wedding community. I'm part of a marketing and SEO community. Like find those communities. Even if you don't participate, you'll get all these like good glimpses of like knowledge and nuggets. So that's a good resource. I think one thing I wish I'd done before I, I my platform is built on current customized PHP which like as a non-technical person, I can't do anything with it. So I wish I had done more research around technical platforms, talk to people who have built something like this before to understand like what is the right platform for you, for your business model, but also for you as a, if you're non-technical, as a non-technical co-founder. So you don't have to be 110% reliable on your developer. So that's another thing I would say. And then the last thing I would say is just read. There are so many days where my husband's like, hey, yeah, I know you're in the wedding industry, but you're also in tech. Like look outside of the wedding industry and like read, like read zero to one, read lean startup. There's so many incredible books and articles out there, like constantly read and like take in as much as you can to really put back into your business, but also to make you a good founder and good entrepreneur. Great advice on all counts. I think all of those things, it's funny, I've done 13 interviews now for the podcast and almost every single one has mentioned online communities like Facebook groups and and LinkedIn and all these things and building up those mentorships to help you throughout the process and also the education factor, making sure to continually educate yourself by reading and and I like that you said specifically going outside of your industry, like you could be focused on how to be the best hairstylist, but 
you should also be exploring the business aspect of, of being a hairstylist. You know, there's so many different, different things to explore outside of your specific industry that can help you succeed as a business person. That's great advice. So tell our listeners where they can find you. What's your website, all your social media handles? come visit us. I am four months old now. Like I love feedback. So even if whether you're into South Asian weddings or not, like I would love for you to come reach out to us. Our website is thedesibride.com. That's T-H-E-D-E-S-I bride.com. Our Instagram and our Facebook handles are the Daisy Bride U.S. So T-H-E-D-E-S-I-B-R-I-D-E-U-S. You can find us on Pinterest. We recently just joined TikTok. So we do not have any content yet, but hopefully by the time you're listening to this, we will have some content. But, and if you want to reach out to me, my email is urgita at thedaisybride.com. It's A-R-J-I-T-A at thedaisybride.com. So again, I love talking to, you know, anyone who's, who's interested in chatting, whether you're starting your own business, you're in the wedding industry, you want to talk about an MBA or going into corporate tech, always love to chat. So Sandy, this was so much fun. I was telling Sandy, this is my first time doing a podcast and I wasn't quite sure what it was going to be like, but I guess you just it, it, it was actually a lot of fun. Thank you, Arjita. That is so nice of you. I have enjoyed this so much. And it's so fun hearing a childhood friend, yeah. their story and their growth and, and everything they've, they've done to grow a business. It's so great. I will leave all that contact information and your website and social media handles in the show notes for anyone who wants to pay you a visit or send you a message. Thank you again so much for coming on and have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Sandy. What a special episode. I'm so grateful to have had Arjuna on the show. Here are my biggest takeaways. First, know your why. I loved the sticky note story. I think it's so important for everyone to do something similar. Write it on a sticky note, plaster it all over your wall, have it somewhere visual so you can remind yourself why you're doing what you're doing and what you want to get out of it. Whether you're having a good day or a bad day, I think it's important to have that reminder daily. The second takeaway is starting a business will teach you lessons. You've heard me say it a million times, but failure is feedback. Be flexible and bounce back from any mistakes that you make or that other people make. She shared the story of her developer quitting on her cold turkey and she bounced back from that when she could have quit along with her developer. The third takeaway is don't get trigger happy. I am 100% guilty of this. I'm always on to the next idea, thinking about the next thing, but it's really important to validate what you're working on now and take baby steps. Make sure you're solving the right problem, know the solution, know your consumer and how to reach them, and finally know when and how to scale. The final takeaway is look outside of your industry for knowledge and advice. I liked that she shared the story of her husband reminding her to read books outside of the wedding industry. I think it's really important because we can learn and gain experience and knowledge from people outside of our specific industries. I'm so grateful to end season one of the Creators Honey podcast with Arjita, a childhood friend, as my guest. I'm also eternally grateful to you as listeners for taking the time to listen every week to these amazing stories. 
we are just taking a short break over the summer and we'll return in the fall with a season two. Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful summer. We'll see you again in August.